Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 335. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 335 you're listening to. My guest today is former studio owner, engineer, author, and vintage gear dealer, Dan Alexander. Dan was a fixture of the Bay Area recording scene in San Francisco for many, many years. He actually ran the same studio space I did, the former Coast Recording Building on Mission Street in San Francisco, as well as Coast on Harrison. He spent many years of his life buying and selling vintage guitars and vintage recording equipment, which we will talk about at length. He's got a new book out. It's called Dan Alexander, A Vintage Odyssey, and he talks to us from his home in Los Angeles. Dan Alexander, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about getting out of that chair. I've hit on this topic many times in the past in one form or another. I do think it's important, and therefore, I'm going to talk about it again in another form. My friends, we need to make sure that we are getting out of our chairs and moving around. I'm not talking about stepping outside to smoke a cigarette or to go refill your coffee cup either. I'm talking about exercise and general movement. Of course, our diet is important, but movement is also key. I want to cut straight to it. I'm not asking you to go join a gym anytime soon. I'm simply asking you to incorporate walking time, running time if you're so inclined, stretching time, and time to lift a minor amount of weights. Turning into a bunch of old people sitting in chairs is not something many of us really want to do. It's not that we don't like sitting and working on audio, but I know that many of you don't want to rot in that chair. You want a long career? Get out of the chair. Get some steps in, stretch, lift weights, and don't lose touch with your body. Once again, we're not talking about becoming Mr. or Miss Universe here. We're talking about simple everyday movements to keep yourself flexible so we can avoid problems that come as a result of no movement. It can be as simple as morning routine consisting of lifting some minor weights, doing some yoga, walking around the neighborhood. Fact of the matter is, is that if you don't utilize your body, it's going to be harder to move later on in life. You will lose your will to want to do things because you're going to have too many aches and pains to contend with. And then you're going to lose your will and it's just going to have a cascading effect on the rest of your body. Do I have a rigorous workout routine? No. But every day I try to do some stretching, some minor weights, some simple movement of my body, walking around the neighborhood, uh, getting up and taking a break and just getting on my feet. You know, I, I really hate seeing good people leave this earth prematurely for completely avoidable reasons. Things that happen to the body can create a domino effect on your health. Some say sitting in that chair is just as bad as smoking. Not to be forgotten, sleep. You have to make sure that you get a great amount of sleep. It's so important for the body to recharge. Do not let your immune system get compromised by lack of sleep. So long story short, take care of yourselves, my friends. Don't forget to get out in the sunshine and move. Get a good amount of sleep in. Take care of yourselves. I want to see you here for the long run. That's my rant. Thanks for listening.
Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Dan Alexander here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Dan, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I, I have so many questions, so I'm just going to jump right in. Where did you grow up originally? I was born in New York City. My parents moved to Kenmore, which is Buffalo, when I was five. And when I was 15, we moved to Berkeley. I went to Berkeley High School. Was that a, a shock coming to California from, from the East Coast? Uh, <laughs> it was very, very different. And uh, Kenmore, Kenmore wasn't really all that great. And Berkeley was, my, my parents were flaming left-wingers. And Berkeley was really 
it was just so different. So yeah, it took me about a year and a half to begin to sort of fit in in Berkeley. Although in Berkeley, fitting in wasn't real important or anything because everybody was on the, their you know, own hippie trip. Yeah, Berkeley is wonderful. I love Berkeley. Well, I'm sure your parents didn't have a hard time fitting in, being flaming left-wingers. No, no. They found political freedom. Uh, Yeah. I mean, them being left-wingers in Buffalo was a big secret. (laughs) 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 Until until they got investigated by HUAC and the House Un-American Activities Committee. Oh, wow. Yeah, who came to town and held meetings exposing all of the, the commies. So my parents' pictures were on the front page of the newspaper every day for a week. And my dad got fired. Yeah, it was an experience. What year was that? That would have been in 64. Yeah. Excuse my ignorance, but when was Joseph McCarthy in? 51, 52, 53. Oh, so this is long after that. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And HUAC was... You know, an ongoing thing. They would tour around from city to city harassing left-wingers. Interesting. Well, yeah. well. <laughs> so, so you're in Berkeley. When did music become an important part of your world? Well, my father was always sort of musically aware. I mean, he listened to Segovia and the Weavers and Paul Robeson, Lead Belly people like that. And in the commie social events, they would have folk singers sometimes. So when I was 14, my dad got me a guitar and a few lessons. And uh, that was the end of that. (laughs) (laughs) All down the beginning of that, however you want to look at it. (laughs) (laughs) When I came to Berkeley, there was quite a music scene at Berkeley high school. Mm. There were a couple of bands, Purple Earthquake and the Haymarket Riot, who became a band called Lazarus. And there were a lot of other musicians happening in Berkeley at that time and at Berkeley High. So anyways, I started playing in bands in the 11th grade. Now, did you go on to have ambitions of being, we'll just say, a rock star? I'm using air quotes. Oh, yeah, Yeah. of course. I played with John Lee Hooker when I was 19, and Hmm. Eddie Money was the lead singer in my band. That's right, because you and John Cunaberti, Eddie Money, Chris, God, what's Chris's last name? Solberg. Chris Solberg, right. I've I've met Chris. We're all in a band together. Yes, along with another guy named John Nelson, who was in the band for the first about year and a half or so. And John ended up also playing with Hooker. And then ended up as Eddie's band meet leader for about 10 years. And Solberg played bass for Eddie for about five years and then played rhythm guitar and keyboards for Santana for about six years after that. Chris, is, Chris has quite an impressive career. Mm. Played bass on the first two Chris Isaacs records. Oh, okay. Right. You know, obviously played on a lot of Santana stuff. And and Eddie, at that time, when you all knew him, was Eddie Mahoney. Right. Right. 
and uh, that band was called the Rockets. And when the Rockets broke up, Eddie changed his name to Eddie Spaghetti. And wasn't it Bill Graham's idea that Eddie changed his name to Money? That I have no idea. Uh, no, that can't be right. Okay. Because the Eddie Money Band existed for a, a little while before Bill Graham was ever involved. Okay. Yeah. Now, when you all were in this band, what year was that? 70, 71 through 73. And give me what you recollect of the Bay Area music scene at that point in time. <laughs> Venues, bands, recording scenes, studios. While there were and are numerous, extraordinarily talented and admirable musicians and bands from the Bay Area, I was myself personally was never very much of a fan of the San Francisco sound. I don't listen to jam bands. Mm -hmm. And I saw all of those bands back in the day innumerable times because they were playing on bills with people that I wanted to see. And I don't want to be blasphemous, <laughs> but enduring the Grateful Dead was <laughs> torture. <laughs> this is something else you and I have in common. I am not a deadhead, never have been, never been a fan. And uh, this is, we're gonna, I'm going to get a bunch of hate mail from all the deadheads, of course. Uh, well, you can edit it out. <laughs> you don't have to admit to it. Uh, but Creedence Clearwater and the Bo Brummels and Moby Grape and Tower of Power, I mean, all of those people were phenomenal. And there, look, I'm not trying to say that, you know, nobody in the airplane had any talent because obviously Marty and Grace were pretty good singers and Jack's a, a really good bass player. But, oh, God, big brother in the holding company. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> anyways, so as far as venues, I mean, there were, God, there were all kinds of venues. I mean, they were all over the place. Back in the late 60s and early 70s, just in the East Bay, just in the Berkeley area, there was the Long Branch and the Keystone and the New Orleans House and Mandrakes, the Berkeley Square, and there were other places. When I first moved to Berkeley, I, I used to go to a place called the Jabberwock, hmm. which was on Telegraph, and it was a coffee shop. And they would have folk players there, John Fahey and oh, all kinds of all kinds of well-known folk players played there. Country Joe and the Fish were a jug band. <laughs> and they were a very, very good jug band. Really good. It was kind of strange when they became this like acid rock kind of hippie electric band that didn't really do much for me. But they were a really good jug band. I took lessons, guitar lessons from a guy who was the, uh, he was the harmonica player in that jug band. And Barry Melton was his roommate. They lived in a house directly behind the Jabberwock. And I would go up and take guitar lessons from Paul Armstrong was his name. And gosh, you know, I mean, Barry and him were probably, I don't know, they were probably 20 21 years old you know i was probably 16 and oh god i thought barry was like the strangest person i had ever 
ever encountered my entire life. But that's because that was when I was first here. I didn't know, I didn't know a lot of acid taken hippies. Yeah. And of course there were a ton of places, you know, in San Francisco and Marin, although the Bay area has always been sort of a backwater in terms of recording. Mm -hmm. The Bay area was, had an extraordinarily active musical scene and still does, of course. But an awful lot of people would go to L.A. to record or whatever. Well, fast forward me to when audio and recording became something of a focus for you and studio ownership. The Rockets met Tom Lubin at the Long Branch, and Tom arranged for us to get about a week of studio time at a place in Ojai called Two Dot that belonged to a man named Dean Thompson who ended up building Santa Barbara Sound, and it was free. Mm -hmm. And Tom, who's a wonderful guy and sort of an, a very easygoing man, he basically let us do whatever we wanted. He tried to guide us, but we were fairly unguidable. So it really opened our minds to the studio. And when that was over, as we were leaving, I turned to Tom and I said, Tom, Someday I'm going to have a recording studio. Hmm. And I was a, aside from being a musician, I was a guitar dealer. I had several guitar stores, a vintage guitar dealer. I only dealt in used guitars, really. So I had this, after the Rockets broke up, I bought a TAC four-track. And I set it up with an Ampex MX-10 mixer in my walk-in closet and had my spare bedroom for a studio room. And then I owned a guitar store from 73 to 76 in Berkeley. And one day I stopped in at a bank and I went to the manager and I said, if I had $50,000 and I, I wanted to start a recording studio, would you loan me 150 grand? And she said, we only loan money to businesses that have been in existence for more than two years. So I walked out of there thinking, well, I got to start a recording studio. Doesn't matter what it is. Doesn't matter what it's like. I got to go into business. And so I found this neighborhood grocery store in the Richmond Hills in this area called Tewksbury Heights. And Chris Cunaberti and the guys from Psychotic Pineapple and a few other people built a studio in there called Tewksbury. We had a one-inch eight-track uh -huh. and a eight-input, four-output op-amp labs console. This was all inside a grocery store. Yeah, this was in a former neighborhood grocery store, which was basically empty. And we built a studio in it. Okay. It didn't have air conditioning, but it was a studio. And you can imagine, we wore a lot of shorts. And we started building Tewksbury in August of 76. And we finished, such as it was, in January of 77. I got, you know, I had borrowed some money from some friends. And I was so broke. When we were done building that studio, I was just broke. There was so much gear that I didn't have. I had always bought guitars from want ads in the classified flea market or wherever. And so I put an ad 
a little classified ad in REP magazine. And it said, wanted recording equipment of all ages and variety. That was the only ad like that. There wasn't anybody looking for used recording equipment, really. Mm -hmm. And I was deluged with replies. The, the, (laughs) The first reply I got was from some guy in Atlanta who sold me a pair of U67s for 500 bucks. And I, no, that, that was not that weird back then. Right. So I called up Jim Stern, who is the manager at Fantasy. And I said, hey, would you be interested in buying a U67? And he said, you have a U67 for sale? I said, yeah. He says, does it work? I said, yeah, it works great. He says, what, how much do you want for it? I said, 750 bucks. He said, if it works, I'll buy it. So I went down there. He plugged it in. He gave me a check. And I walked out of there thinking, this is a lot easier than selling guitars. <laughs> well, the next response that I got was from a guy. I don't know who his name was. And he was from a place in Los Angeles called Radio Recorders. And Radio Recorders was one of the four big independent recording studios. There was Sunset Sound and United Western and Gold Star and Radio Recorders. They did everybody from Elvis and Sinatra on down. And I didn't know any of that, of course, at that time. So he says, "Uh, I'm from this place in L.A. called Radio Recorders. I see you buy used recording equipment. We're, We're closing. And so we started and we had a conversation and we made a deal for three EMTs and two U47s for $5,000. And so I said, I said to the guy, okay, I'm coming down to LA and we'll make this deal. I'll bring you the money. So 10 minutes later, the telephone rings and it's Joe Martinson from Martin Sound who is the designer of Flying Faders. And and he says to me, he says, I see you buy used recording equipment. You don't have any EMT plate reverbs for sale, do you? Wow. I I said, I said, why? Yes, yes, I do. I tell you what, I said, I will come down to Los Angeles and I will bring you two EMT plate reverbs for $5,000. He says, okay. And so (laughs) I went to LA and I went to radio recorders and I rented a truck and I bought the plates and the 47s. I put a couple of plates in the truck. I drove them to Joe's. I got checked from him. I went back to radio recorders and I, for a thousand dollars, I bought like a Celeste and an upright piano and a Hammond with a Leslie and I don't know, maybe a Starbird and a bunch of other mic stands and some gobos and that kind of stuff. And I drove drove home with an EMT plate reverb and a couple of U47s and all this stuff. And it was like, it was great. And one of the things that you'll see in my book is this page from Billboard magazine. And on one page, there's these two articles. And it says, One article, it says, radio recorders closed, all is dark or something. And then the article below says, Tewksbury gets new everything. (laughs) (laughs) 
So you're basically Tewksbury did not have very much, and you proceeded to gather all this stuff, wheel and deal, sell what you didn't need, keep what you did. Yeah, it kind of took over. Tom Lubin gave me a big box of recording arts magazines, R.E.P. and D.B. magazine and Studio Sound. In 1977, things were a lot different. Almost no one had any interest in the stuff that we now call vintage. The microphones of choice were the U87 and the 414. There were only a few places that you could buy used equipment. There was a place called Boynton Farms in New York, and there was another guy, uh, Wynn Schwartaw in New York, who kind of bought and sold stuff. And I, Jerry Cubbage had Coast Recording Equipment Supply in Los Angeles, but M49s and U47s were $250, $300. And the first great microphone I bought was at the Skinner Audio Auction in San Francisco, and it must have been 77. It was an immaculate Telefunken 251. It was 250 bucks. And a student of Tom Lubin's later left that microphone on top of his Volkswagen and drove away. <laughs> I'm shaking my head, audience. <laughs> so anyways, Tom gave me this box of magazines and this English magazine, Studio Sound, had advertisements from a number of audio dealers. Don Larking and uh, a guy named John Southard had a place called Trad and a guy named Malcolm Jackson. There was a guy in Germany who's still there, Schmidtronics. And these, these guys had scads of microphones boxes and boxes of old microphones. And I started buying them from them, importing them into the United States. And after a couple of years of that, it occurred to me that they were obviously selling me this stuff and making a profit. And they were buying these things somewhere. And they had lots of them. So a guy who I knew had some money that he had inherited. And I said to him, I said, look, Let's take $15,000. Let's go to Europe for a month. We'll look for microphones. I'm sure we'll find enough to cover the expenses. And we did. We arrived in Amsterdam on a Saturday, and on Monday we went down to the post office, which is where the telephones were, and opened the phone book, and I called the first recording studio listed in the yellow pages and uh, made a deal to buy three U47s and a Sheps M221 from that guy for $1,000. And he was four blocks from our hotel room. And I turned to my friend, I said, I think we're going to find some microphones on this trip. <laughs> well, we ended up finding about 125 microphones. Okay. I mean, it was crazy. So that became one of my things. Yeah. So were you still running Tewksbury at that time when you were in Amsterdam? Yes. Okay. Although very shortly thereafter, in August of 1980, Hyders closed and Tom Sharples, who was the chief electronics engineer for Otari America, and his partner, Michael Ward, 
had a studio in Michael Ward's basement. So I called them up and I said, why don't we take over the Hyders Builder? And we did. And that was, well, hindsight being what it is. It was a, a monumental undertaking. And unfortunately, we didn't have the wherewithal. We should have done it differently than we did. Trying to equip and run four recording studios is a big bite to chew. And we are talking about what is and what became Hyde Street Studios, are we not? Yeah. Okay. And it was Hyde Street Studios. So here's a question. Back then, was that neighborhood like it is and has been for years? Was it always that that kind of drug infested was it was not never a good neighborhood yeah it was not as bad as it became but it was never a nice neighborhood unfortunately yeah that's a uh, problem real estate being what it is right Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. After I moved into Coast on Mission in 88, The neighborhood was great for about eight months. Then they opened this big social services building a block away and boom, the neighborhood just went to hell. Yeah. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. Now let's give the audience some context. You got that studio, the coast building. We're talking about 1340 mission street audience in San Francisco. And If you are a longtime listener of the show, you know, you've heard me mention that address before because that's the same studio that I ran for a period of time and my troubles there caused me to create this podcast. So Dan is the first person to have that strong connection there, that similarity between us or that mutual history. So you bought that studio from the Bill Putnam. I did. From Bill Putnam and a guy named Dean Austin. Dean Austin had been like 
Bill's second right-hand man. He was his right-hand man for years. And Bill rewarded him by giving him coast recorders, which then he ran at a significant loss for a number of years. And they were about to close. And I bought the place and took over. And then it was my torture. Yeah. Bill Putnam owned it for many years. And it was quite successful. Bill was just a uh, a very talented businessman, very very talented businessman, and talented in every way. Right? I mean, I don't get me wrong. I was not close to Bill. I met him a number of times. He was a really nice guy. I am a tremendous admirer of his accomplishments. He was a very seminal figure in our industry. What can I say? Yeah. What was your experience like running that studio? Well, <laughs> when, I, when I took over, Coast was an ad house. What they did was voiceover work for commercials. They did Letters from America by Alistair Cook was done there for years. We'll leave the lights on for you. Motel 6. Right. Da -da 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 -da. That was all done at Coast with Tom Bodette. And he did a lot of recording there. And unlike hiders, when we lease, we didn't buy hiders. We bought a couple of speaker systems from them. That was all. Mm -hmm. None of the employees stayed. We kept one tech because I had my own staff from Tewksbury. So the people who had been at hiders sort of scattered. But that wasn't true at Coast. When I took over, I kept the entire staff. Mm. And we tried to do the advertising thing. Sorry, to give them due credit, they did do a, a substantial amount of music recording actually at Coast on Mission. They did hundreds of Concord jazz albums, including like 30 Grammy-nominated albums. They did some stuff with Van Morrison. They did some stuff with B.B. King. A lot of, oh, Blue Cheer. <laughs> that scion of Bay Area music, Blue Cheer. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but myself, of course, I was uh, coming from a, a music perspective. It was really, really difficult to keep the staff and to keep the business. Dean had been losing a substantial amount of money. And uh, yeah, I'll tell you what Coast was like when I took over. The first six weeks I was there, I did nothing but clean. And in Studio A... The back one-third of the room was completely filled with stuff. Tape recorders and mic stands and gobos. And it was just crammed, filled with stuff. And I was back there working and I found these two piles of phone books, about waist-high piles of phone books. And I went out to the lobby and the the five people in the staff were sitting in the lobby drinking coffee. And I said to them, I said, do we use these piles of phone books in Studio A? And they looked at each other. And one of them looked at me and said, what phone books? Hmm. So, <laughs> so the shop at Coast was this little sort of closet thing. You couldn't walk into it. Where was the closet was it down the hallway immediately to your left? I want to say it was upstairs. Oh, okay, okay. And you know, the lobby, that was that was the studio manager's office. 
oh. the lobby. We didn't have a lobby. Yeah. There was a real lack of space there. At one point, I actually moved DA Audio into the building immediately next door. And that was a big improvement. Then we had lots of storage space and, and lots of tech. So anyways, where were we? Just running coast. and, and... It, it was always a struggle. Yeah. It was always an immense struggle. What made it a struggle? Well, it was a studio business in San Francisco with no, basically no parking. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. See, it's not like there were other studios that were like really doing well. I mean, you take the plant, for example. Right. That place never made any money since Chris Stone left. Not a dime. It was always a, a drain. But that's the studio business. Unless you're in a, a really big area and able to charge really a lot of money. You know, the studio business, <laughs> it's never been a great way to make money. There have been a few people here and there who did real well. But those people are the exception to the rule. Most people, it's a gigantic struggle. And if you don't own your studio building, you're screwed. Yep. That's it. The studio owners who do okay are the guys who own their building and they struggle through and then they retire and sell their building. <laughs> yeah. You're not in the studio business. You're in the real estate business. Well, coincidentally. Yeah. But yeah especially when you're you're dealing with expensive real estate. Yeah. You know, it's one thing if you're in Podunk and you rent your building for $500 a month. It's another thing if you're in San Francisco and you rent your building for $5,000 a month. Now, you didn't own the building, right? No. No. Yeah, neither did I, of course. But otherwise, we may not be having this conversation about that because I would have sold the building long ago. Now, so if I have my history right, you left the Mission Street building and went to the former Golden State Recorders building. So it became, instead of coast on Mission, it became coast over on Harrison Street. Yeah. I, I had both buildings for about four months. I couldn't hack it at all. Oh, wow. And we totally, as always, as with all of these studios when I took them over, they were always cosmetic disasters. You know, Hyde Street, oh my God, it was unbelievable what Hyde Street looked like when we moved in there. Mm. It was just, it was just atrocious. And the same was this coast on mission was just sort of mediocre. It wasn't like disgusting. Coast Harrison, I mean, we spent a year rebuilding it. I mean, we had to do huge amounts of physical work in there. The guy who did my carpentry then launched his career as a vintage audio dealer. Who are we talking about? I'm not going to mention the name. Okay. But yeah, he became a vintage audio expert by being my carpenter. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I thought so. Now, you were, you were still buying and selling, wheeling and dealing audio gear. Oh, like a madman. My... Biggest year of business was 1989. Huh. We did a 1200000 in sales in 89. That was my biggest year of business. So, yeah, I mean, I was running all over the country. I had a little store in Hollywood that John Rubin ran. 
It was in a, a shack at the back of one of Oceanway's parking lots. When we moved out, they leveled the shack so that they could have more parking. So yeah, I was very much buying and selling. That was, I mean, look, that's how I paid for the studio business. I was going to say, you were, oh, making, absolutely. you were making more money in gear sales than you were running a studio. No, I was making money in gear sales. I was never making money in the studio. Gotcha. gotcha. It was always terrible, whether it was busy or not. Just the nature of the business. So you ran Coast on Harrison Street. At what point did you decide to get out of that building? What happened was that we moved in in 95. My lease was going to expire. And the dot-com thing had happened. The landlord was a uh, multi-cazillionaire who owned lots of real estate in San Francisco. He had rented out the space next door to Coast for $20,000 a month in a space that was basically equivalent to what we were paying five grand a month for. Mm -hmm. His uh, new manager decided she could score some brownie points and we were four days late on our rent and they evicted us. What was happening was I knew, I knew that when my lease expired, there was no way I was going to be able to stay in that building. So I had started building a studio in the basement of my house in Berkeley. Mm. And then we got evicted. And that was the end of my studio space in, in my basement. Yeah, they evicted us after four years for being four days late on the rent. And then what uh. they did, brilliant. They were brilliant what they did. They stripped the studio completely out to the four walls of the building. And then it sat empty for two and a half years while they tried to rent it. Wow. Morons. God. So that was, that was the Harrison street address. Yes. Okay. So then you, you ended up moving to your, your basement. I had a 6,500 square foot building in San Francisco that was filled with stuff. What I ended up doing was, moving it all into my house mm. and it was an it was a real disaster it upended my entire life no two ways about it yeah so yeah that was how we that was how i ended my studio business now if you could sum up your studio i mean you had Tewksbury. i should never have left Tewksbury. i know <laughs> that's the that's my summary yeah if i had stayed at Tewksbury. I would have ended up owning the building and the house next door. We would have expanded the building. By 1979, you know, Tewksbury opened in early 77. By 79, I was making pretty good money buying and selling equipment. I had a studio manager who was doing a perfectly fine job of booking Tewksbury. It was booked all the time, probably made, oh, gosh, I don't know, two, $300 profit a month, but it wasn't painful. It had been painful. It had been terribly painful. At one point, I lived at Tewksbury for a year and a half. At one point, I was living there. Cunaberry was sleeping in a, a sleeping bag on the floor. But by 79, it, it had stopped being painful, and I was doing pretty good. And then, of course, we moved to Hyder's. And that was five years of excruciating difficulty. Then I leased 
Tom Sharples left the partnership. Michael and I ended up splitting up the building. I just kept one studio. Then we rebuilt that studio. That was Studio C, which is where Credence did all their records. And a year later, Sandy Perlman leased the studio from me. And so I actually started to make money from that. Mm -hmm. And he was there for like, I don't know, four years or so. And I, I kind of got back a lot of the money that I had lost trying to make a go of Hyde Street. So that was cool. And then I took over Coast on Mission and it all started again. <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting to hear your story about Tewksbury and your reflection on that because I too had a small studio in Emeryville, was making money, saving money, buying gear, had a good client base, everything, it was moving. It was, it had a system to it. And then I thought, I've got an opportunity to go to the Coast Building. I'm going to go there. And that's when it just went. Right. Because I just got, too, I thought I was going to be bigger than I was. I, I got too big right. for my bridges. And I, sure. had a, I had something in place that was really strong. So it's interesting to hear your Tewksbury comparison or your, your Tewksbury story and how that compares. Yeah. I mean, it's not that the other studios weren't better. They were better studio spaces, but the difficulty of ownership was never ending. So what happened after studio ownership? Where did your world go from there? I continued to buy and sell stuff mm -hmm. and went back to buying and selling guitars a lot. My wife and I got divorced and I was raising my two kids. So I was pretty busy. <laughs> yeah. It kind of eliminated a lot of my ability to travel. And a lot of what I did in terms of equipment involved travel. I spent a tremendous amount of time in Europe. In the early 80s, the only way I could sell microphones was to take them to places and have people compare them. I went to every major city in the United States with big boxes of microphones. I called studios. I said, hey, I got these old, beautiful old microphones. You want to hear them? And so I would go over and we would do blindfolded A-B comparisons. Hmm. I did hundreds and hundreds of them in studios everywhere. Every single time. The U87 and the 414 were the bottom of the pick every time. Hmm. And that's how I sold microphones because people didn't know. They didn't know. When you started doing the, the selling of gear, it wasn't as in demand as it is today. Yeah. Pultex were $300. Yeah. Yeah. LA two A's were a couple hundred bucks. When Tewksbury opened, I had two LA three A's and two RCA BA six A's. The BA six A's, Tom Lubin gave me one of them. He bought it for 50 bucks and I bought the other one for 50 bucks. So what, did you ever see a turning point where the gear really started to ramp up in price? Well, from the time that I started selling stuff, there was never a time in which relatively soon I wasn't raising the prices. When I raised the price of a Telefunken 251 from $1,200 to $1,800, people were yelling at me on the telephone. No, no microphone's worth that much money. Blah, 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 blah. I said to him, I said, look, 
is how, how much foresight I had. Someday this microphone is going to be worth $5,000. Yeah. You know, because I had my experience with vintage guitars, which had already, you know, long before vintage recording equipment, vintage guitars had started escalating in price, which they continually have done or did pretty much for decades. And I mean, look, the thing with recording equipment is the same as everything else. It's supply and demand. Mm -hmm. As more and more of these things were brought into the United States and more and more people were exposed to them, the demand got higher and higher. The supply was never particularly huge. I mean, they only made 6,500 U47s, and that was a lot. It was a funny thing. It was, it was a lot like guitars at that time. It was regional. Mm-hmm. At the same time as I had no problem, at one point, having no problem selling stuff in Los Angeles, I could go to New York City and buy stuff everywhere. Wow. You know, and not to, not to talk about Europe, where it was insane. I mean, I bought all the microphones from one European broadcast network for a period of about 12 years, starting in 1979. And in fact, it might have been more like 15 years. Uh, I bought 175 C24s from them for 80 bucks a piece. I bought close to 200 C12As for 60 bucks a piece. Hundreds of C28s and C61s and 451s. I mean, it insane, crazy. I used to buy stuff. The AKG dealers in Europe used to take their old microphones in trade from the broadcast agencies Mm -hmm. in part trade towards new stuff. And then they would sell me the old ones. I bought dozens and dozens and dozens of BBC microphones from AKG in England. So let's, I want to talk about your book. Now, what is the, what is the essence of the book? The book is equal parts, autobiography, reference book, and stories. Mm. There's 450 photographs in the book. There's details about the products of 24 manufacturers. There's a list in the book of vintage items, 7,500 of them, that we sold between 1979 and 2000, including how much they sold for serial numbers and who bought them. And that is 40 double-sided pages, that list. It illustrates very much what you were asking about before, which is this increase in price. People look at that list and they just lose their minds because we sold stuff for nothing, nothing, because that's what, that's what it was going for. Uh, another thing that's in the, in the book is a, uh, a list of every Trident A-range and B-range console and who the original purchaser was, something that Trident themselves do not have. Well, now maybe they do. <laughs> I don't know. There's a a list which includes technical specifications for every microphone, professional microphone, 
distributed by Telefunken from 1928 until 1980. And that includes Sheps, RFT, Neumann, and AKG. It's just a collection of my, of my stories. Yeah. Along with the um, attendant documentation. There's a lot of really nice pictures in the book, I think. There's 40 pages on Neve. It's actually 11 separate chapters. And it's called Dan Alexander Audio, A Vintage Odyssey? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to put a link in the show notes, audience, so you have to check this book out. And I'm going to, I'm going to swindle Dan into sending me a copy. I'll put a link. You can order it up. This is not a problem. This is not a problem. That's fantastic to hear. What is your advice to people buying vintage microphones today, which I'm sure in my audience, there's probably a fair amount. Well, my advice is give me a call. No, I'm just, that's a joke. <laughs> but <laughs> that's a joke. You know, it is an insane situation with this stuff. Every three months, I turn around and I'm just astounded by how much the prices have increased. What has happened is that some very, very, very wealthy people have discovered that recording equipment, that vintage recording equipment is an investment and they have driven the prices sky high. I mean, you know what a blue stripe 1176 is? Yeah. $15,000. That's what it is. $15,000. For a single channel compressor. You, you want to buy a Fairchild 670? I hope you got 75,000 bucks in your pocket. Wow. Yeah. Neve 1073s. And I hate to clue you guys in on this, but the 1073 is not the best Neve module. But the te- a Neve 1073, they're selling for $10,000. Yeah. It's just crazy. I mean, it's just insane. And there are people who have millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of this stuff basically stashed away. It's not being used to make recordings. And it's probably never going to be used to make recordings again because it will be in bank vaults. What can you say? I offered to buy a Telefunken 251 from a guy the other day for $21,000. And and that, that's wholesale. Yeah. You know, I mean, and what's really interesting about that is that you can buy a brand new Telefunken 251, which for all intents and purposes is indistinguishable from an old one for a fifth of that amount of money. Yeah. And you think about all the limiters, great, fantastic, wonderful limiters that you could buy for 75 grand. I mean, you can fill your studio with them. Or you could buy one. Or you can buy a Fairchild. And that's fine. I Look, Fairchilds are incredible. I love them. Wonderful. Spectacular. What's fascinating is, is it's not only spawned this whole thing with, you know, the prices shooting through the roof, but it's also spawned a huge amount of clones. Yes, it's, it's astounding. You know, in 1977, there was no such thing as an outboard microphone preamp. Didn't exist. I bought my first six Neve modules from my friend Peter Duncan at the AES convention in 1979 
for 50 bucks a piece so that he didn't have to take them back to England. I had them. <laughs> I tried to sell them for five years. It wasn't until Coonabirdy bought a pair of them and did surfing with the alien with them that I was able to sell them to anybody. Hey, you know, I got these Neve modules. You can put them in a box and plug your microphone in it and get the Neve sound. And well, why would I want to do that? You know, there were no boutique microphones, period. None, zero. In 1977, the only tube microphone that was still being manufactured was the C24, and it was eliminated a couple of years later. Ribbon microphones, they were collector's items. Yeah. 77s and 44s were like, you know, $200, $250. And actually, the, the, the tube microphone, condenser microphone thing, got reintroduced and became popular actually long time before the ribbon mics became popular again. Again, there were there were virtually were no ribbon mics being made. Maybe you could buy an RCA 77. I'm not sure. Unlike today. Unlike today. Yeah. When there's there's 20 different boutique ribbon microphones and venerable vintage ribbon microphones are worth, oh gosh, let's see maybe 20 times what they were worth back then, 10 to 20 times. Yeah, shocking. The other thing was, was back then, there were a couple of people in various parts of the country who I didn't know about, who did work on microphones. But in terms of general microphone repair for old microphones, if you had an old Neumann you wanted to fix, you sent it back to Gotham. Yeah. And that was it. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned Neumann with the U67 in particular. They obviously thought it was in their interest to start recreating the 67 again. So nowadays you can choose between, well, do I buy a new 67 from Neumann for, I think they're 7,000? Or do yeah, I buy a vintage like one for 10? Right. The, the reason that Neumann reissued the 67 aside from the fact that they just wanted to sell microphones, is because they could. Because the body parts, the capsule, they're all just like a U87. They can't reissue a U47. They got no VF14s. Mm. Saying we can't, they can't reissue an M49. They got no AC701s. Aside from that, who knows if they even have the, the stuff to manufacture those body parts anymore. Who knows? Yeah. But yeah, the, the, the boutique manufacturers of outboard equipment and microphones, they simply didn't exist back then. And it, that's all a result of this ever-growing demand for vintage equipment. Do you still sell vintage gear? Yeah. You know, I still buy and sell, and I'm still buying and selling guitars. Uh, this afternoon, I'm going to pick up a 48-channel discrete Calrec console made out of six Calrec J-series buckets, which we're going to be parting out. And I'm currently waiting for delivery of a Neumann bottle microphone serial number three, a Flickinger tube limiter, and a pair of Poltec equalizers. 
that stuff will be here on Sunday. Dan, can people still find out more about you at danalexanderaudio.com? They can, okay. and they can see my uh, my YouTube video channel. Which I've been watching. Okay, thanks. Yeah. And so far, reaction to my book has been really positive. I've had a couple of, couple of complaints and a couple of corrections, but that's to be expected. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be selling, and I really appreciate you spending this time with me and letting me talk about it. That's, that's very gracious of you. Well, it's it's really intriguing for me because you are a part of Bay Area recording history and this this gave me the opportunity to, you know, ask you some questions about things. Are I've you wondered. familiar with Heather Johnson's book If These Halls Could Talk? I am familiar with that. Yeah. Great book. That, Great book. And that book preceded my time at the Mission Street address. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was very fortunate in that I I met Heather right at the end of that project and i got to correct everything that she had written about me uh, which was very fortunate I, I and she's wonderful she's just a lovely person and very very talented writer anyways i very much appreciate your time and please allow me to have the publisher send you a review copy of the book Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's wrap up and then you and I will talk about that. Dan, thank you so much. Once again, audience, you can go to danalexanderaudio.com and read all about Dan. And I will put a link to the book, which is called Dan Alexander Audio, a vintage odyssey in the show notes for you to buy yourself. And I think you will get a lot out of it based on everything Dan has told us. And I, and knowing Dan's history in the Bay Area, I, I really think you should check it out. So, Dan, thanks for being on the show. It's great, great to talk to you. Thank you, Matt. A real pleasure. Appreciate it so much. Take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Dan Alexander. Here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. If you like the show, would you mind doing me a favor and heading on over to iTunes and leaving a positive review or uh, five stars, a a nice mention, whatever you want to do there. But uh, something nice would be great and it really helps out the show and I would certainly appreciate it. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith there with his lovely voice there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, 
including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. 